If you're not standing, if you would uh, join me in standing this morning for the reading of God's Word, we will be on uh, page 575 in the Blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. If you do not have a Bible at home, we'd like for you to take that with you today. We're going to be reading in Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 6, and I believe we're finishing today. Is that correct? Yes. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this season, this Advent season, Lord, as we have considered so much of your third and final Advent, of your return over the last couple months in the book of the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Lord, we know that none of that would be possible if you hadn't come the first time. And, and Lord, we know also, as Caleb pointed out to us, that we are not stuck in some limbo between your two advents. But Lord, you are right here with us now. And we stand upon your promise, your, your final words in the book of, of Matthew when you said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so, God, we thank you that you're right here Right now, we ask that you would enable us to hear your word. And God, not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word also. Lord, enable me uh, with your divine power to be able to communicate clearly what you have said, Lord, recognizing that I am nothing more than a messenger of your message, Lord. And so help me to communicate accurately and clearly what you have said to this people. And we thank you for all of this, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, here we are. Did it. You didn't think we were going to, but we did. After 17 weeks, we have come to the end of the road of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. I've just, I made an amazing discovery this week. There are actually 64 other books in the Bible. <laughs> Seriously, look it up. I'm not making that up. True fact. So now we're going to start going through the other 64. Um, but we've completed um, 2 Thessalonians with this message. And in this second letter, just by way of review, it was sent 
to this Thessalonian church to comfort them and to instruct them, mostly because of one key issue. There was tremendous misunderstanding about Paul's teachings about the return of Jesus Christ that we sang about today. It seems that the Thessalonians had been victimized by several false prophetic words and even a false letter, a forged letter bearing Paul's name that had led them to believe that Jesus had already returned and that this severe persecution that they were undergoing was actually a part of a post-apocalyptic judgment that had befallen them. And it meant to them that their repentance towards God, their belief in Jesus, belief in the gospel, had profited nothing to them. So Paul, needing to address this problem, as we've talked about for several weeks, he reminded them of what he taught when he was with them. He was with them for a very short time, but he taught them of everything that, he reminded them of everything that he taught them, and in both while during his time there and also in his first letter, and he encouraged them to hold on to the teaching and the tradition that he had given them. And Paul, gives them, because of this confusion and all of this massive of misinformation that was coming their way, um, see, fake news wasn't invented in the last decade. It, there was fake news in the, in, the, in the time of the Thessalonians. And Paul gives them assurance of, this le- of the letter's authenticity with these words at the end of the portion we read today. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. Everything he told them, he wants them to know, this time around, everything he's telling them is coming directly from his heart, from his lips, from his mind. from the And, and that, as it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul opens these letters way back in 1 Thessalonians, if you can remember back that far. He opens his letters by saying, grace to you and peace. And he will end this letter with another reminder of grace. Why would he do that? Because it's the source of all of their hope and all of their endurance. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. But before he signs off, before he says, okay, see you later, XOXOXOX, before he, before he says that, there's one more pressing issue in this church And it's jeopardizing their corporate peace. And it's jeopardizing their success in the proclamation of the gospel. And and if Paul were writing in our time in 2019, if he was writing in our culture, if he was even writing to our church, we might think that he's making a mountain out of a molehill and he he should simply just ignore the problem. But Paul can't. And the problem is that many in their congregation are idle. They're lazy, if I can put it in a more common vernacular. He says, now we command you, brothers, pay close attention to this. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Paul's apostolic authority is divine, and it's on full display with these words, we command you. If Paul had no authority, it would 
not mean a lot for him to say, we command you. But he says it. He says, we command you. And then expanding on that, he says, we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, our authority is divine. He's saying, we are acting on Christ's behalf and we're speaking with his authority. Paul says that the idol are not, the, the idol people in their congregation are not walking in accord with the tr- tradition that you receive from us. What does he mean when he, when he speaks of the tradition? What he literally means is the word of God. Let me explain. He, he's referring to the Old Testament revelation that he, he explained, that he expounded upon when he was with them. But he's also talking about the, the divine apostolic revelation that the Holy Spirit was giving him about Jesus. And so all of this commandment that in the name of Jesus is rooted in the word of God. It's not just something that Paul was having a bad day and he was going to go take it to these lazy bums in Thessalonica. He, he had authority from the word of God to address this problem. Those who are holding the traditions, this is the command. Those are the, that are holding the, to the traditions that he taught, they should literally keep away from the idle people. Why? Because they're corrupting the church's efforts and the testimony of transformed lives. When, when they're out saying, hey, we've, we've put our trust in Jesus and, and he's changed their lives and then people look at the church and they see these bums mooching off of everybody else, guess what that does? It diminishes the power of the testimony of the gospel. And so Paul is saying, uh-uh, cut them off. Back off. Leave them alone. Stay away from them. Now, there are many Bible passages. Many Bible passages. Sometimes when we... we I, I did a, a mini-series last year on the topic of church discipline. And it's always a tricky thing. Because some people get real nervous when you talk about church discipline. But I want you to know you, all of what I'm saying is grounded in the Word of God. There's many, many passages calling the church, commanding the church, the the big C church, to discipline members when they stray from righteousness and don't embrace the truth. Did you know that? It's part of the church's job. It's part of the church's responsibility. Did, Did you know that? It is. It's not something we should resist or fight against. It's something the church is supposed to do. And, and, and Paul says, keep away. And that means that members of the body should participate, not just support the discipline of the church, but participate in the discipline of wayward people by literally disassociating with them. Verse 14 says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. In other words, say, Okay, that guy, he is not listening to what Paul said. He is not submitting to Paul's authority uh, that he has through the Holy Spirit. It says, take note of him. And then it says, and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Some people in churches only want pastors to step in, and only pastors, when someone is bringing reproach on the gospel. And church leaders certainly must lead in discipline. They must be the ones who bear the major burden of that. But Paul seems to be saying that everyone in the church must be unified when the church deals with unrepentant saints. He's not saying, okay, now this, this word's for your pastors. Pastors, keep away from those who are idle and ignoring my instructions. He says, I'm telling the church, that's all of us, to keep away. The principle here, uncomfortably, I admit it, is found in the Old Testament. In the law, when someone blasphemed God, do you know how that was dealt with? Does anybody know? 
They were stoned. But it wasn't just that they were stoned. The Bible literally, in, in two different instances, requires that the entire congregation, the entire community of Israel, participate in the stoning of the blasphemer. Everyone has to participate. They would not be allowed, the congregation would not be allowed to tolerate the desecration of God's holiness. So in similar principle, the church is not responsible for capital punishment anymore, but in similar principle, Paul calls for the church to be united in its response to sin. He did the same thing with the, with the, uh, with the Corinthians. If you want to read a really harsh story from the Bible, I've told you about this before, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul brings up to that church that there's a man in there who is actually sleeping with his, his stepmother. And Paul says, you guys have been tolerating this. You've been celebrating it. You've become proud and arrogant. And then he commands the whole community to come together and kick that guy out. To deal with it together as the body. To not push it off on the pastors, but everyone's supposed to deal with it. What you may not understand, but I hope that you'll begin to understand, is that great peril is produced in the church by well-meaning people who try to comfort those too readily and too quickly who are being lovingly disciplined by the church. When when the church is dealing with somebody and somebody comes alongside them and say, yeah, no, it's, I'm sorry, I, you know, they just don't understand you and your special situation and all that stuff, you're actually doing more harm to the whole church than just helping that one person. Did you know that? Y'all are real quiet this morning. I know it's uncomfortable, but it's true. If we're going to be a family, if we're going to be the body of Christ, representative of the body of Christ, did you know, newsflash, we have to embrace all of biblical truth the good, the bad, and the ugly. If it's uncomfortable, we embrace it. If it's beautiful and wonderful and comfortable and joyful, we embrace it. But if God said it, we believe it. And if God said it, that settles it whether we believe it or not. Amen? Sometimes we don't support church discipline, and it causes friction in a church because of a warped misunderstanding of grace. People say, well, we got to be nice or we got to be gracious to people. Everyone struggles, everyone sins. Or maybe we have a fear of being judgmental. But I want to tell you this. Please understand this. Please embrace this. Grace without repentance does not produce a transformed life. If you're just extending grace to everyone who is living in every way that is offensive to God's holiness and not expecting repentance, turning from their sin, then you are not offering real grace. You are offering what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. It is a powerful mockery, or powerless rather, mockery of grace. Grace changes those who receive it. Cheap grace just makes them twice the son of hell that they were before. But didn't Jesus say, come on, Mark, I'm going to catch you on this one. Didn't Jesus say, judge not that you be not judged? Of course he did. He did. But if you read the rest of the chapter, you would know that he was speaking of using ourselves as the standard of righteousness. It's me saying, Eddie, you should be at least as righteous as me. Because the problem is, if Eddie looked in my closet, I'm not that righteous. So I'm never the standard of righteousness. Never. The standard of righteousness is Jesus himself. The standard of righteousness is the requirements of God's word. 
And, and, and so people, sometimes when they, when they don't want you touching their sin, their idol, they say, judge not. Jesus said it right from the lips of the Savior, judge not. But I want you to know that repeatedly, not once, not twice, repeatedly in Scripture, we are commanded to judge unrighteous behavior. Did you know that? All throughout the Scripture, we're commanded to judge unrighteous behavior in others, we are to judge even spirits and, and even alleged spiritual gifts. We're co- and we're even called over and over again to judge ourselves. We are definitely called to be judges. But judgment is only sinful when it's proud. Can I say that again? Judgment is only sinful when it's proud, when it thinks we're superior because of something inherent in ourselves, and not only holy because of Jesus' grace. Judgment is always wrong when I'm judging you because I'm offended because you don't meet my standard or you sin differently than I do. That's always wrong because that's just pride expressing itself in judgment. But when I look in your life and you have things that are de- that are destroying your faith and pulling you away from the beauty of Christ and I say, hey, wake up, stop. Run from that. Flee from those youthful lusts. When I say that, all I'm doing is I'm actually showing you incredible love. I'm calling you away from that which would destroy you into that which will give you life. That's not mean. That's not hateful. That's love. You're sticking your hand hand in in a jar full of rattlesnakes and I didn't say something. That wouldn't be loving. And yet oftentimes we just... Rock ourselves to sleep while we watch our brothers and sisters in Christ engage in all kinds of destructive behavior. Terrible attitudes. Believing lies. We say nothing. Furthermore, this is the best part. Church discipline. When the church comes to a point in someone's life where they say, hey, we got to do something here. we got to be united in our response to this. It's never... If it's healthy, if it's done rightly, it's never so that someone will be condemned. It's never so that they'll finally get their just desserts. It's designed, church discipline is designed to wake someone up from error with a heart and a desire for restoration, that they would be restored to the church, not cast out into outer darkness. Paul says that the goal of, of this, this command to keep away from the idol was that he may be ashamed. But it's not so that he'll wallow in shame. There's a difference. It's so that he'll regret how he's roamed from the truth and come home just like the prodigal son. Think about that image. Prodigal son has it his own way. He tells the, the, the father to take a flying leap. He goes, spends all his money on, on booze and whores and, and, and finally loses it all, winds up with his face in a, in a, in a, uh, a, a, a pig trough covered in slop, covered in mud. And all of a sudden the Bible says he came to himself. And he goes, oh wait a minute. Even the butler and the Cook and the maids, stable hands. All those guys at my father's house are doing a lot better than I am. See, church discipline, when someone is out, when they're away, and I'm talking, of course, about the most severe form of church discipline, but when they're away, the goal is that face down in the pig slop, they'll say, oh yeah, oh yeah, 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is so much better than this life. That's what the goal is. That's what we're wanting. That's what we're praying for. You all with me this morning? You still working through that turkey and stuffing and all that stuff? I know, it's brutal. That tryptophan will get you. Paul describes the difference between being shamed and the shame that brings repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 beautifully. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Man, I love that. I want my salvation in Christ to be filled without regrets. That I want to be motivated to come to Christ and lay everything down and have Him without regret. And then he contrasts, he says, whereas worldly grief produces death. It's a big difference. Salvation without regret versus death. And he says, for see what earnestness, he's talking to the church and how they repented. He says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But what also, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourselves innocent in this matter. Well, Mark, doesn't it say punishment there? That, that part of the, the godly sorrow, the godly grief was about punishment? Well, punishment here speaks about an eternal, an internal rather, not eternal, but internal agony that, the, that those who had sinned experienced because they desired so deeply long longing to be restored to fellowship they were like ah, i hate this this is painful being away and so their desire this this godly sorrow drove them to want to be restored paul made sure i love this so beautiful so pastoral paul made sure that the thessalonians kept redemption and restoration in mind he said do not regard this man him the idol brother he says do not regard him as an enemy but warn him as a brother you don't, you know, when, when the church, among those who have put their trust in Christ, should never be divided into good guys and bad guys. Black sheep and white sheep in the family. It should never be divided like that. But that doesn't mean that, that many of us will sometimes find our ways into, into just quagmires of sin that need to be addressed. And, and hopefully when we find ourselves, when I find myself in there, hopefully your response to me, to me will be to say, Hey, Mark, because I love you, I'm going to tell you, you're on a path that leads to destruction. You're on a path that leads to sorrow. You're on a path that leads to, to grief. And I'm calling you to repentance so that you can have life and have it more abundantly. We warn each other as brothers. We don't regard each other as the enemy. They were to disassociate with him. That is clear from Paul's words. But they're to leave their hearts open to the possibility that God would call that brother home. And it's a wonderful thing when it happens. If you've ever been in a situation in a church where there was there was healthy discipline being practiced and somebody said, okay, fine, I'm out of here. I'm, you know, if you're not going to let me wallow in my sin, I'm not going to stick around. And they leave and then God begins to work effects like he did in the prodigal son to bring them back to repentance. There is nothing in the life of a church that's more beautiful than the day that that, that wayward brother or sister becomes restored to the church. There's just nothing more beautiful than that. That we can experience. This idleness, again, I said at the beginning that we might have said, come on, lighten up, Paul. But this idleness was a big deal. And Paul was confident in his correction of their sinful behavior because he'd both taught them and demonstrated for them what the church, 
for that church what was expected of them. He said this, he said, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we, may, or that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul says that they were given, this Thessalonian church was given a pattern to imitate of how the godly, the, the, the believers, the Christians approach their work. And there are two key points that he makes about the example that he had given them. First, Paul wasn't idle. That's not just a simple statement. It, it's, it's loaded. Paul wasn't idle. He didn't roll into town with the good news, expecting to be waited on hand and foot. He didn't say, all right, everybody pay attention. The man of God is here. He didn't say that. He came in and he, began, he got diligently to work. He said that they, with, that they worked with toil and labor. They worked day and night. But probably that means that they did their secular business in the day. The Bible tells us in Acts that Paul was a tent maker and that they did church business at night. It wasn't uncommon in those days for the church to meet together every day, to eat together, to worship together, to, to listen to the word together. And so they were, they were doing that. And so Paul had a long day, but he still did it. What does this teach us? It teaches us that all believers must be diligent. They must be. It's a command. No one in the kingdom is elite. You never graduate from hard work in the kingdom. And there's nothing disgraceful or demeaning in honest work. In fact, the very opposite is true. It's the most honorable thing that a man or a woman can do. Christians, listen to me carefully. Pay attention. Wake up. Christians should be the hardest working people in the community. Hey, Tabor, go ahead and turn this on. Christians should be the hardest working people in the community. And there's more. And in their work, Christians should be universally content without ever complaining. But I know none of us do that, so it's okay. okay. I'm talking about that Baptist church down the street. I hear they complain all the time. Somebody make sure they get the recording of this message. <laughs> Christians should be the hardest workers in the community. They should also be content without complaining. I want to say something to you. If you are unwilling to be the hardest working, non-complaining person at your job, don't let people know you're a Christian. Why would I say something like that? I'm always telling you to share the gospel and be vocal and bold about your faith. It's because of this. Sloppy work. Careless work is oftentimes worse than open sin in the esteem of the people you work with. So just don't tell people you're a Christian. Now what I'd rather you do is repent of your terrible work ethic 
and then begin to boldly proclaim the gospel along with that. Interestingly, Paul here, the hardworking missionary, no one would have accused him of being lazy. He says he had the right not to do secular work. And he affirms this over and over and over again in the New Testament. He's a missionary, he's a pastor, he's working hard already. He has the right not to do secular work. But he was willing to work outside the church in order to give them an example to imitate. A godly leader will always elevate the needs of the flock above any rights he could, he could demand because of his position. Always. That's the way it works. That's the rules of the game. Next, Paul says, we, we paid for everything we ate. They earned what they consumed. I was thinking historically of the church, the history of the church. Monks in days of old would take a vow of poverty. They would say, we, we're going to uh, relieve ourselves of all worldly possessions, all financial security. And then, having done that, they would go through the villages and beg for alms from everyone around them. And I'm telling you that by doing so, they dishonored Christ. They absolutely dishonored Christ. See, as Christians, we support ourselves by hard work. Now, don't misunderstand me. We, we must be willing to charitably and generously support those who are not able-bodied, have situations where they cannot work. But everyone, everyone, capital E, should provide for themselves in accordance with their skills and ability. Everybody. I remember a news story a few years ago. There was a, a, a man, a, a quadriplegic man, handicapped man, and he had a job here in Lubbock, you may remember the news story, um, where he sat outside a clothing store as a sign holder. And he held his sign and, and you know, directed people into the store or whatever. Well, somebody, uh, some, somebody with, with, I'm sure, good intention had a fit... They called the news station and they said, they said, this poor man is out in the cold. He's out in the, you know, doing all this stuff. He's having to hold this sign and, and this business is exploiting him. And so news, the, the, the news station did a really good job. They went to the man in the wheelchair and they said, what do you think about this? And he said, those people are nuts. These people have given me a job I can do and they're paying me for it. You see what I'm saying? That man should have gotten a gold medal for that. Because he had very limited ability, very limited skills, and yet he had enough dignity to get out and do something he could do to earn a living. He's still doing it. Yep, yep, I saw him outside of Market Street the other day. Still doing it. That is what God calls us who are representatives of the King of Kings to live like. to Not to do more than we can, but to do what we can. And then trust Him to the, for the ability possibly to do more. If I'm not being clear, no Christian should ever make a lifestyle habit of mooching off of others, whether family, friends, the church, or the government. Never. It's a disgrace to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now don't misunderstand. Don't get nervous. This isn't some political statement. Everyone, everyone needs help sometime. Everyone, raise your hand if you've ever been helped by somebody when you were in a deep hole. I know I have. Some of you are liars. (laughs) 
I just want you to be convicted so you'll repent and get saved. Don't misunderstand. Everybody needs help every once in a while. And you shouldn't let your pride keep you from humbly receiving what you need at the moment. But what I'm saying is, don't let the provision of a need temporarily become a sinful lifestyle, a habit of letting others support you. That is sinful. It's sinful. If you have any ability whatsoever to support yourself, you should. Paul says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Okay, I'll say something a little bit political. That statement could revolutionize the welfare system in this country. It's out of my system. See, I've found that hunger is one of God's greatest motivators to make us industrious in our work. It is. You get hungry enough, you'll do a lot of stuff. The prodigal son, a good Jew, decided to feed pigs when he got hungry enough. Paul says, For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul uses a play on words in the Greek. He says, you guys aren't busy, but you are busy bodies. His point is that these people weren't just lazy, as we think of lazy. They weren't just sitting around in their underwear watching SpongeBob eating Cheetos all day. They were, they were causing trouble with all this surplus of free time they had on their hands. They were depleting the time and the resources of the other members of the body. And they may have been the source of the false teaching. Think about it. One of the things that we believe is that, is that they had, because Jesus was coming or had come that they were they were saying oh you know we got to you know we have to get rid of all of our stuff and so hey you're a rich christian you should support me because I, i'm holy enough that i get rid of all my stuff so if that's the scam you're running you have a really high motivation to let people think that jesus has come don't you and so they, they, they may be the source of all this misinformation meddlers have to occupy their time doing something and so a man in the 18th century named Richard Kingston wrote this proverb. He said, an idle person tempts the devil to tempt him. And from this fruitful root has sprung all the wickedness and miseries of mankind. You guys have heard the saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Let me tell you something. The devil is always scanning for somebody who's doing nothing else so that he can put them to work. The devil's always calling out in the marketplace, looking for people standing around, Saying, hey, I've got a job for you. I've got a job for you. I've got a job for you. Pastoral form, Paul both commands and encourages the idlers. I love that. He says, we command and encourage. Anyone can command someone who is troublesome and harmful. But Paul, get this again, don't miss this. Paul, recognizing that he's speaking to brothers, he encourages them. Sometimes... The bad behavior, this is another plug for church discipline, sometimes the bad behavior that you see in other people and that, that drives you crazy, it's because people don't believe that they can do better and no one has ever had the courage to call them to do better. 
And his encouragement and his command is that they find work, that they do it quietly, that means faithfully, without drama or complaint, and that they get to have the satisfaction of knowing they provided for themselves to the glory of God. Some of you, if I said, if I interviewed you before church and said, hey, what's worship? You'd say, well, in a minute, Caleb and the band's going to get together, they're going to play some music. Some of us will raise our hands, some of us will sing loud. I'm telling you, the Bible, uh, the, the, the picture that the Bible portrays of worship is much bigger. Did you know that when you go to work and you do the very best job you can, that that's worship? Okay, Tabor, I, I keep cutting out, man. We, I, something's really wrong. We're having some technical difficulties today. Let me try it one more time, see if it's on. I said that when you go to work and you do the very best job you can to the glory of God, did you know that that is worship? And that you as believers should never stop worshiping. The way you treat your wife, your husband, your children. The way you work, the way you represent Christ at work. The way that you look into the Bible. The way you entertain yourself in your leisure time. All of that stuff should be worship. Worship should not be compartmentalized to 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. Amen? To be all of our life. And our work is so much a part of that. Paul has instructions for the others as well, the, the ones that are doing things right. He says, as for you, brothers, don't go grow weary in doing good. When you see people getting away with not maintaining their integrity, it is so easy to say, what's the point? If you're working a place in an office and everybody raids the the uh, supply cabinet for school supplies every year when it rolls around, and you look at them, and they're getting away with it, no one ever says anything, then your first impulse might be, what's the point? Why maintain this integrity? Everybody else is doing it, I'm just going to grab some things from here and do it myself. But Christians should always continue doing the right thing, not if it gets hard, but when it inevitably gets hard. Because it's going to get hard. It's going to get harder and harder to do what's right. And yet that's when we've got to do it the most. In Galatians 6, 9, Paul says something very similar. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. I love that because it's, it's connected to a promise your, your consistency in doing right is connected to a promise. If you do heartily, do what you do heartily as, as though you're working for the Lord, because you are, there will be a reward. If not in this life, certainly in the one to come. Okay, let's wrap this up. Almost everyone here has a job. Almost Everyone here, if you don't have a job, you're trying to get one. I get that. We're all in between jobs from time to time. The majority of you, because I know you, work very, very hard. Show up, do what you got to do. So why preach a sermon on idleness? Why didn't I just kind of make a few comments, move on to the next thing? It's because, as I've said over and over again, our working often says more about us as Christians than our morality or our otherwise religious activities. It does. Your coworkers, I want you to put this in terms you'll understand, your coworkers do not care what you're doing this morning. They don't. They're not sitting at home getting ready for the game saying, man, I hope Jason's at church. I hope he's really worshiping God. 
that would really just warm my heart. If Kim is, is, is celebrating around the Lord's table, that's really what I hope for. They don't care about that at all. Right? Amen? But if you blow off your work in a way that they have to pick up the slack, do you think they care about that? If they see you being dishonest with your employer for a personal advantage, whether they suffer from it or not, do you think you've said something about your faith in the Lord Jesus? See what I'm saying? I want you to keep doing this. But if you don't do that Monday through Saturday, this means a whole lot less. A whole lot less. So that's why I would preach something like this. Let me tell you a story. Growing up in my house, you guys have heard some of the some of the, the war stories about my growing up years, but hard work was not expected. It was not appreciated, and it certainly was not rewarded. My parents expected very, very, very little of me academically. It was not, did I do my test? It was, did I go to school? I mean, we're talking about the lowest, lowest bar of what was expected of me. That was academically, otherwise productively, I... I didn't do anything if I didn't want to do it. In short, by the time I became a Christian at 16, I've told you that story, I was a bum and I was well known for mooching off of everyone. My friends, my church, whoever whoever I could take advantage of, I did. So somehow, through some weird cosmic accident, I got a job as a DJ at a Christian radio station after I was saved. Now, I don't know if you know about the intense manual labor involved in being a DJ, But it was even worse for me. I worked graveyard. And it was a Christian radio station, so all the preachers that couldn't afford a 30-minute show during primetime played them at 3 a.m. So all night long, I would I would change tapes from one preacher to the next, so I had 30-minute blocks of free time to do whatever I wanted to do. And so because I was had so much character, I spent those long, lonely nighttime hours goofing off with my friends or listening to music really, really loudly while the sermons droned on and on and on. Kind of like this one. (laughs) After about three years of working there, it's incredible, but you know, you know, you don't, you don't bite the hand that feeds you, right? You got a good thing. You just keep going with it. And by the way, young people, I was making $3 and 35 cents an hour. So anyway, yeah, I know I was banking. Um, after about three years, I wanted to take a quick trip with my buddies. Just, I think we we're going to go Six Flags or something. I told my boss I couldn't come in for a few days. And he wouldn't believe what that guy did. Yeah, I can't believe this. He said that if I didn't come in, don't bother coming back. <sighs> he actually had the nerve to expect me to do my job. Can you believe that? So, as a self-respecting 19-year-old, I quit. And I wasn't going to tell me what to do, so I quit. But I found out something that was really incredible. I found out that money doesn't automatically automatically replenish itself. Did y'all know that? It doesn't just come rolling. I didn't. No checks were coming in. I thought they would. Didn't have a job. Couldn't find one. And interestingly enough, Odessa, Texas, oil field country in the in the early nineties, it seemed that no one wanted to hire an experienced DJ who quit his job in anger in a depressed economy. I don't know why. So I was broke, 
couldn't do things with my friends, had no car, no skills, and diminishing self-esteem. And worst of all, dun, 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 I had to return home. During that time, because I was a Christian, the Lord convicted me. My face was in the pig slop, and the Lord got my attention. He convicted me. See, I realized over the course of several weeks that much, much of my Christian life had been spiritual. And, you know, I did all the stuff I was supposed to do. But something about my Christian life was made painfully aware to me that my Christian life wasn't very practical. It wasn't producing much. So I repented and I told God that if he gave me a job, I would work there faithfully until he moved me somewhere else. So the next morning, got up, went wherever I could within a walking distance to get a job. And the second place I walked into hired me on the spot. Brace yourself. I wasn't asked to be the president of a bank or a top four, DJ at a top 40 radio station, you know, anything like that. I went to work. At Long John Silver's, I was a cook, or as we like to call it, an indentured servant. (laughs) I went home at night, covered head to toe in grease and smelling like a fish. God was probably laughing as he really, really worked character into me in ways that for me were very, very, very unpleasant. But I remembered my promise, and I threw myself into this job. Literally, I, I can't, I, I can't exaggerate this. I threw myself into it. I, I had, I, you know, I'd met Ginger at that point. We weren't, we weren't even dating, but she was really encouraging me in this. I threw myself in my job. I volunteered to do everything that no one else wanted to do. I remember one day they were having some air conditioning problem, and it resulted because there was about a billion, that's maybe a slight exaggeration, but not much, a, a billion dead pigeons on the roof. I volunteered. I wasn't voluntold. I volunteered to get up there and clean those off. They needed someone to play Santa Claus on the main drag. With I was, you know, 19 years old, didn't want all my friends seeing that, but I volunteered to do it. So I got out there and played Santa Claus. I worked extra shifts and holidays so that my coworkers could be off. And I literally did it all for God's glory because I was convicted. And I had been given a gift of repentance and I didn't want to squander it. So I did it. While I was there, working for 3.35 an hour, I think they bumped it up to 4.25 while I was there, but I know, really banking now. But I was able to buy a car, I got back into my own place. I also began to rise in the ranks of the store. You know, they were starting a little management program stuff, and, and man, I was so happy to be promoted off that fryer. That was the deliverance out of Egypt for me. About a year later... After I started, so I worked there about a year, my friend came into the store and told me that the overnight delivery company that he worked for needed someone ASAP. And I wound up taking that job, and in that move, I doubled my income. Never asked for the job. Basically, he came in and gave me the job. I worked there for about a year, but there's more to the story. So the company, this overnight delivery company that I worked for, had some corporate clients, big corporate clients like Xerox and others, and um, and they were they were guaranteed by their contract guaranteed delivery by 10 a.m. 
Now, sometimes we, our plane would land at the Midland Airport, and then we'd unload it and go deliver our stuff. But sometimes our plane wouldn't even land till after 10. So my bosses required me, or they wanted me, to cook the books, to make it so. So when they turned in their reports to these companies, it showed that they, were, they had gotten their deliveries on time. And I would not do that because my conscience wouldn't allow me to. So my boss angrily met me on the tarmac at the end of one day and told me to comply with this scheme or I would be fired, just summarily released. And this was very, very, very stressful. I went up to our church the night of that conversation because I worked there as well and and just doing like janitorial stuff for the church and And I I prayed, I was all by myself, and I prayed that God would help me to retain my integrity and not lose my income. You know, I had a couple years now under my belt of trying to be faithful at work. I had just gotten married, like literally within like a month or so, and I certainly didn't want to be out of work under those conditions. And in case you're wondering, Ginger didn't want me to be out of work either. So the very next day, one of my deliveries on that job was to Exxon's corporate offices there in Midland, big corporate offices, several hundred employees. And one of the guys in the mailroom um, came up to me and said, man, you won't believe this, but I have, have a situation in my family. I have to move. I have to quit today. And we were just wondering, we like you. We like hanging out with you. Would you be interested in taking this job here in the mailroom? And, and, and I was like, yeah, I think I might be interested. <laughs> um, and so I, if my memory serves me correctly, I started that job within a day or two of my boss telling me he would fire me, and I got another significant raise. And I stayed there for several years until I was hired from within that company, from within Exxon, by an outsourcing company that gave me another raise. And I was able to move to Lubbock with that company. Do you see what God does when we say, okay, we're going to do things your way? I wish I had time to tell you the story from from moving to Lubbock to here and how that sort of thing. But in all of that time, from from the time I, I walked into Long John Silver's to the time I moved to Lubbock, I did not fill out one application and had four progressively better jobs. And I never filled out an application. I had people say, we want you. Come work for us. That's the Lord. I realized through all these experiences that my work and my attitude towards it really mattered to God. I learned that the way I approached my work was a great way to show the world what Christ had done in me. And I learned that the way I work opens doors to share the gospel. Over and over in those places and several afterwards, I've been able to share the gospel because I've tried to maintain, and this is nothing about me, it was all a gift from the Holy Spirit, a gift of repentance, to be, I've been able to share the gospel and see people even come to know Jesus. At Long John Silver's, I learned that when we do our most unflattering work as unto the Lord, He's watching and He takes care of His own. I learned at the delivery company that the importance of honoring the giver of the blessing, even if, and how important that is, even if it means you could lose the blessing itself. Just honor the giver and He'll take care of you. At Exxon, I learned with David... That, he, as he says in Psalm 37, I have been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. God is faithful. Our work matters to God. And most of us are going to get up and go to work tomorrow, maybe after a long weekend. 
I want to ask you and let the Holy Spirit probe you as I ask you this and answer it with honesty. Answer it with truth. You're going to work tomorrow. Will you go with a heart of thanksgiving because God has provided that job for you? Or will you complain about every inequity that you perceive? The pay, the mean boss, the, the unfair workload, the you know, how the other people don't don't carry their weight, all that stuff. Or will you just say, Lord, you've called me here, you've put me here, you provided this, so Lord, I'm gonna do this as unto you. Will you work as unto the Lord who by the way, is your real boss. That's what the word Lord means. Will you work as unto the Lord or are you just going to mail it in and do just enough to stay under the radar and get by? Are you going to go tomorrow to your job and fret about your job security? Or are you going to trust that God is the one who puts the clothes on the flowers and it sets the table for birds. And that if he does that, that he's most certainly taking care of you as well. Will you scheme tomorrow and play the system? Or will you find something productive to do, even if you have limitations, and that you'll do it to the glory of God? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would just come now and convict us. Lord, in the sweet way that only you can. And Lord, I pray that tomorrow would be the birth of a brand new era in our lives, that we would be faithful in our work, that we would be worshipful in our work, that we would be thankful in our work, Lord. We'd be honorable in our work, Lord. And that we would do that in faith, trusting that you can move us wherever you want us. You can bless us however you want to, Lord. And so, Lord, we just put all of our hope in you. We don't put it in any job, in any position, any promotion, any title. We put all of our faith, all of our hope in you. Lord, we ask that you would do this miracle in us all, Lord. Cause us to be faithful. Cause us to be joyful. Cause us to be a great witness to those around us at our jobs. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, I want to read a quick benediction over you. And this week I'm going to stray from our normal pattern and I just want to read the last thing here right before Paul authenticates his letter, the last thing that he said to the Thessalonians is the close of our 17-week series. If you would just put your hands in a receiving position, I'll say to you, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.